Thanks for listening to The Rest is Politics. Sign up to The Rest is Politics Plus to enjoy ad-free listening, receive a weekly newsletter, join our members' chat room and gain early access to live show tickets. Just go to therestispolitics.com. That's therestispolitics.com. Elevate every morning with Tommy John's Second Skin Underwear. The luxurious support of Second Skin guarantees everything will go smoothly. With over 20 million pairs sold and thousands of five-star reviews, guys love Tommy John. Plus, your most valuable assets are covered with Tommy John's best pair you'll ever wear or its free guarantee. Shop Tommy John's friends and family sale right now and get 25% off site-wide at TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. See site for details. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Welcome to another episode of The Rest is Politics Question Time with me, Alistair Campbell. And with me, Rory Stewart. Now, Rory, um, we talked in the main podcast about um, the earthquake in Turkey, but a very good question here from Fred Banning. Reports this week suggest that Turkey has raised £30 billion in earthquake tax since 1999. That's the, the earthquake that I mentioned in the main podcast. But it's unclear where the money has gone. How can those donating to the Disaster Emergencies Committee appeal and other organisations do so with confidence that the money will get to where it's needed. And I guess that's something you have to wrestle with as a charity head the whole time. Yeah, so we're actually involved in a very small way in the response to Turkey and Syria, because one of the things that you need to uh, provide, and it's something Give Directly provides, is, is cash support to people when families are wiped out, because it allows them to meet their immediate needs. Sometimes you get in a problem, which is that you guess that what everyone in a town needs is tents and actually they've got shelter and what they need is food. So cash allows you to adapt that. The answer is the Disaster Emergency Committee and their appeal goes through NGOs that I admire immensely, NGOs like Save the Children that I've praised a lot on this on the show, others like Oxfam, who I've got a lot of admiration for. And they absolutely are getting this money directly out on the ground. It's not being handed over to the Turkish government. And the same is true with our operations through Give Directly. We as the name implies, we take cash from the public, we put it straight into the hands of the recipients on the ground. We're not putting it through the Turkish government. Mm. Okay. Big Kenny. I don't know if that is King Kenny Dalglish. Um, I'm sure, I know his daughter is a listener, but I don't know about Kenny himself. Kelly, you'll have to tell us. Are the Tories trying to leave the country in such a bad state because they know Labour are going to win the next election? That way they can <laughs> blame them for everything and try to cut it to one term in opposition. I don't think that's as crazy as it sounds. Go on then, give us, give us your theory on that. No, I don't. Look, it, some days I think, I do think, Everything this government is touching seems to, they seem to be making things worse. Is there some kind of is there some weird plan going on here? Um, but it's interesting. We had another, we had another Tory MP yesterday throwing in the towel. Glenn yep. Stevenage, yeah, twenty one now, I think it is. And I think it's part of the general. I mean, I think it's very miserable being Conservative MP. I, I saw a minister recently who's been a minister for a long time now, and I said, "How are things?" And he said, "How do you think things are?" I'm just miserable. He was even more miserable when Boris Johnson was in. Mm. Uh, but it's just horrible, really. And I can see why many, many of them are leaving. I don't think they're trying to uh, screw the country up. 
but I do remember it's something that political parties often say, I, that the myth in the Conservative Party, which they're not going to be able to keep going now because they've wrecked it, but always used to be that they inherited financial problems from Labour and then they sorted them out. But that fundamental story that we campaigned with on 2010 seems to now be in a bit of trouble. I, th- I think I think Labour genuinely will be able to run the mess we inherited, the mess we inherited, the mess we inherited. Um, yeah, I also think, by the way, it opens the door for Labour to be much bolder. I'm even beginning to wonder, we get quite a lot of questions about electoral reform. I'm even beginning to wonder whether you couldn't actually wipe the Tories out for good by saying, listen, we, <laughs> we'll think about changing the electoral system next time as well. I think you could have a huge impact because on the current polls, you'd end up with Labour getting almost half the seats and Tories only quarter of the seats. Um, I, I agree with you also that you, you keep sending out this tweet saying, you, I can't believe it, 20% of the British population is still voting Tory. <laughs> I'm glad um, you've noticed. I'm glad you've noticed. Um, but <laughs> one of the, the but that, of course, connects to your point about what we were discussing with Alan Milburn on leading around the Ming Vaz strategy, that when you've got that kind of lead, I do think you can be a bit bolder. Now, I say that bearing in mind that many of us said that to Theresa May when she seemed to have a commanding lead over Jeremy Corbyn mm. seven weeks before an election, <laughs> uh, encouraged her to bring in these very radical tax to fund social care tax on mm. homes. Mm. And she managed to lose her majority from this amazing commanding majority. So, you know, maybe I'm contradicting myself. Yeah. Gone. Your comments will be welcome. This is from M. Taylor on Richard Sharp's position after the Sunday Times front page this weekend. We talked on the main podcast about the lack of shame in relation to Lee Anderson being found out to have sort of, and it was trivial on one level, stitching up a sort of a guy to say he was wonderful. But I watched Richard Sharp through that select committee appearance. And I mean, I know not liking the cut of somebody's jib is not enough to say that they should go. But what I find scandalous about this is that he can't see that there was anything wrong with what he did. That while he was trying to become chairman of the BBC, he was helping the prime minister, who would be ultimately the person to decide whether he got the job or not, to get an £800,000 loan from somebody who at the same time, it seems, was also trying to become the head of a I think it was the British Council. And even weirder, the cabinet. So cozy. And the cabinet secretary appears to have decided that Boris Johnson didn't need to declare this loan because the man was a, a relative, a second cousin. But then it turns out that he'd never met this second cousin, that he required Richard Sharp to introduce him to his second cousin, which really calls into question the cabinet secretary's judgment. I mean, how could he somehow think that it was okay for Boris Johnson to take an £800,000 loan from somebody he'd never met? simply because he happened to be a second cousin. I mean, I've yet to hear anybody tell me anything about the way Simon Case has conducted himself as Cabinet Secretary that tells me he's there doing the job that the Cabinet Secretary should be doing, which is, one, speaking up for civil servants. I don't get the feeling he does that too much. But also, part of your job in that position is to speak truth to power, and part of speaking truth to power is to tell them the limits of the power that they have. And that was one absolute red line. I can't believe it. Look, it wouldn't even have required the cabinet secretary. I can't think of anybody that I worked with in Downing Street who would not have said, I'm sorry, you can't do this. It's, it's also that, I mean, Simon was brought in very, very, very young. I mean, it's, it's a strange decision to have brought somebody in in that way. Cabinet secretaries, we should talk about them a bit more on the, on the show. But, you know, these people, I, I'm a real admirer of a man called Richard Wilson, who, who maybe you came across. But Robin Butler before him, Robert Armstrong before him. I mean, these were sort of, 
they came in at much, I think they were much older when they came in. They had incredible seniority within the Burke trend, another very famous one, wasn't he? Had such sort of gravitas and such an ability to sort of represent the traditions of the civil service in its best way to the prime minister. And I think Simon Case wasn't really set up to do that when Boris Johnson brought him in. Mm-hmm. Well, we could definitely talk about all of those because they, they were, not all of them, not Bertrand, but um, several of those you mentioned were cabinet secretaries during during our time, but that's probably a much longer discussion. But what about this one, Rory? James Thomas, where between Alexander Boris de Pfeffel Johnson and Nadim Zahawi on the Rory Stewart distinguished scale does Lee Anderson sit? <laughs> <laughs> so, so I'm, I'm going to draw the scale for you. I think we'd say that on your distinguished scale, Johnson is so far off it yeah. that he, you know he's right. He's he's right over there. Nadim Zahawi, I think you started with him over here, but I think you brought him into about here. I've now got my hand in the middle yeah. of the scale. Yeah. So where are you putting Lee Anderson? Well, it's it's <laughs> not not very <laughs> distinguished. Not not my not my type of conservative. Although it's an interesting. I mean, it's a stupid comment because it responds to slightly what we were talking about yesterday. But those three figures do show the way the Conservatives Party is changing and its diversity mm-hmm. in terms of people's backgrounds. I mean, nobody could be more different in their background and education than Lee Anderson and Boris Johnson, and yet they ended up on exactly the same side on on Brexit. Yeah. yeah. And, Lee, and Lee, Lee Anderson is on record as saying that he's, he sees Boris Johnson as, as part of his family. Now, here we are. Berlin elections. Joe Hager. Given Alistair's interest in Germany, it'd be great to hear your thoughts on the Berlin election results. How much of this is due to citizens' dissatisfaction with the way the city's governed versus a more general swing towards the right in Europe? Could you just begin by telling us what happened in the Berlin election? Well, Berlin is one of the three cities in Germany that is also a land, one of the, one of the 16 Länder. Uh-huh. I think the other two are Bremen and is it Hamburg? Um, so they had on this weekend just gone, they had the election there and it was pretty catastrophic for the SPD, the, the, the social Democrats. Berlin has been a social Democrat place for as long as I can remember. And it was governed up until now. And this is, we'll get onto this. It, this is the crazy thing about their system by what's called a red, green, red coalition. The SPD, right. the Greens, and the left party, Die Linke. And, and, and uh, so just to interrupt for a second. So broadly speaking, you're saying that Berlin was left-wing in the way that London, by and large, has become a left-wing city. Is that right? Yeah. 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 And, and it's always been a, a seen as, a, as an SPD stronghold. But because of their system, not necessarily with sort of massive numbers in terms of the share of the vote. But what happened at the weekend is the CDU, the, the right-wing party, Angela Merkel's party, um, went from 18% to 28.2%. The SPD fell from 21 to just over 18. The Greens fell slightly. The Linker fell slightly. So the CDU are without doubt the clear out-and-out winner. But in the discussions that are now taking place, the SPD is still trying to see whether they can't put together the same coalition. And I think it's leading to a lot of soul searching. And of course, it's not a good result. Obviously, this is not just about national government. I hate it when people have local and regional elections and and they just sort of, you know, say what this means nationally. But I think it is a bit of a blow, both for Schultz and also for the Free Democrats who are part of the government. They they fell pretty badly as well from 7% to 4.6. So yet again, we're seeing that 
governing parties struggle um and i think the the other thing that was there was a lot of um didn't really get much coverage this outside of germany but there was a lot of um disorder around um new year a lot of it blamed upon the immigrant population and uh the feeling that you know the authorities just haven't got on top of this um so it's whichever way you look at it and i speak as somebody who obviously is a supporter of the spd in germany uh, whichever way you look at it it is not a good result for them okay right so i think i had a question for you as as our mm. sports expert joseph salter on the paris olympics my question to you in two parts what justification is there for the russian federation being allowed to compete at the paris olympics secondly what can be done to overturn this position Well I don't think there's any justification for the Russian Federation taking part. The question that I think is is being discussed is whether there should be any place for any of the Russian and Belarusian athletes under a neutral flag. And this has become a real hot potato. In fact I know you've been in Switzerland and I've just been in Switzerland and uh, I was talking to somebody who works at the International Olympic Commission, the IOC. And their position, the position of Thomas Bach, who's the head of it, is that there should be a place for athletes, but not they, they, they will not get medals, as it were, that go on the medal table for their country. They would not wear the national flags. They would not have the national anthem sung if they were to win a gold medal. But Zelensky is very much against that. I, I see the British sports minister took part in a conference call the other day with a lot of Europeans who said that they didn't think there should be any place. And I think it's a tricky one because if you go back through the history, at the moment, every, you know, everybody knows there's wars going on. There are lots of wars going on at the time of Olympics. We've had to the discussion we had with Michael Johnson about other issues, about you know, two different people can be right in different ways at the same time. So I, th- I think it's, it's, it's not as black and white as saying they are from Russia, therefore they should have no right to compete. You know, how would people feel, for example, if a Russian or Belarusian athlete took part and then defected and then made a great statement against Putin and against Lukashenko? So I think it's one of those that's going to resolve itself over time. I think Anne Hidalgo, the mayor of Paris, I think she's come out very strongly against, but I think this one's yet to be resolved. Very good. Now, here's, here's one teasing you. Oh, dear. Uh, uh, so this is on the pronunciation of the Chinese premier from Andrew oh, Collier. I, I, I get this a lot. Please would former diplomat Rory give accomplished linguist Alistair some coaching on the pronunciation of the Xi in Xi Jinping. Anywhere between Xi and Xi is fine, but definitely no Xi. Um, yeah. Now, th- I've, actually, I've, I've had, th- this is not the first time I've had this. I, why do I say Xi Jinping? I guess it's because... Well, it's, it's, partly, it's, partly this is because of the way in which Chinese has turned into British. So there used to be something called the Wade Giles system. When I was taught Chinese, we were taught in the Wade Giles system where his family name, which is the first bit of it, was spelt H-S-I, which encouraged me to think it was pronounced C. Um, but then they've changed it to X-I. And I think the struggle for English speakers is to work out how you pronounce that X because it's not obvious why you wouldn't write sh to try to try to render mm. it mm. and then the final thing of course which which you know where we all go wrong and i'm horrible at is getting the tones right because it's in fact a rising tone a falling tone and a rising tone so it's something like xi jinping um and i i i'm now going to be criticized by everybody so so i do tend to say xi jinping but i shouldn't say xi i should say xi uh, François Hollande told me that. Well. He told me I mispronounced it. He said it's Z. He's, he's C. Xi Jinping. Xi Jinping. Yep. So it goes up, down, up. So Okay. Yeah. Anyway. Okay. 
Well, you, you'll be better at it. You're a better musician, better linguist than me. Yeah. Go on then, question for you to me. Flame, where do you see yourselves in 10 years? If you could pick any job, political and other, what would you do to best influence the world for good? And Rory, will you be returning to active politics? I hope you can both use your wonderful positions to make a real difference. And we talked about this a little bit with um, Decca Aikenhead, um, who I thought made a very fair point. She said, it's all very well for you guys, you know, getting lots of people listening to your podcast, but surely if you really want to make a difference, you should get back in. And I should give a shout out to Douglas Alexander, one of your predecessors as Secretary of State for International Development. He's just been selected for Labour in East Lothian, lost his seat in Paisley Goodness. good on him and has come back and I think I do think good that's, on him because I that think that is good on him yeah yeah that's really good on him so what about you do you think you uh, do you think you will well, ever I, well, I don't back? know I mean I, I'm very I, I'm, I am very very lucky at the moment because I'm involved in this charity that I love and and I do come across colleagues who've left politics or even people who've sold businesses casting around to work out what to do with their life and I've got an amazing team we're running 12 country offices I think we're making a real difference to extreme poverty and I think I can help in a small way lead a drive to convince people that the way to address extreme poverty is through cash and that that's the key to international. Right, but I can feel a butt coming. I can feel a butt. Yeah. And the butt, I suppose, is this, that, that as I relax more, as I recover more, I'm a kind of recovering politician, the temptation comes back more. Mm. And, and if I could find, I mean, it's so difficult, isn't it? I mean, the, the fantasy is to find a way to be helpful and really help the country, but Boy, oh boy, Douglas Alexander putting himself through that. Is is it a seat he's likely to win? Is it All of these seats at one point you'd have felt were, were Labour. It's East Lothian. I think it is a winnable seat. And I could be completely wrong here. I think I'm right that the sitting SMP MP is a guy called Kenny McCaskill, who was one of the few who defected to Alex Salmon's outfit. So whether there's something not very healthy going on within the SMP there. But Douglas is somebody for whom I've got a lot of time. I mean, he's obviously, you know, I've worked with him on several election campaigns. He's smart. He was a good minister. Um, I think it's good that somebody, and you know, and I've got to say, if, if I were, if I were Keir Starmer, you, I know you were raving about Alan Milburn the other day. I would be thinking about. I wonder if there are people out there of the, you know, the the younger ones of the older generation, as it were, that it might be worth thinking of trying to get them, persuade them to come back. So I, th- I think it's good because I think it. I think Decker had a point. I think we both feel we can make a. A contribution in a different way. I think the podcast is a good way of sort of staying engaged in the debate. But, you know, one of the reasons I've written this book is ultimately it's about encouraging, in my case, particularly younger people to say, I want to get engaged in politics. I want to know how to do it. I want to give it a go. Because if if not, we just leave it to the bad guys. That's it. That's it. All right, let's take a quick break there, Rory, and we'll be back in a minute. Elevate every morning with Tommy John's Second Skin Underwear. The luxurious support of Second Skin guarantees everything will go smoothly. With over 20 million pairs sold and thousands of five-star reviews, guys love Tommy John. Plus, your most valuable assets are covered with Tommy John's best pair you'll ever wear or its free guarantee. Shop Tommy John's friends and family sale right now and get 25% off site-wide at TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. See site for details. Hi, it's Stephen Colbert. And I'm here to tell you about The Late Show Pod Show, which is the podcast of The Late Show with me, Stephen Colbert. And I'm here with my uh, producer of the podcast, Becca. Hi, Becca. Hi, Stephen. So what do people get when they listen to The Late Show Pod Show? Let's, let's sell this thing. The extended moments, for sure. Because we run out of time for broadcast, but we have plenty of time on the podcast. 
It's kind of like being a live audience member of the show because you get things that no one else hears. Listen to The Late Show Pod Show with Stephen Colbert wherever you get your podcasts. Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture, and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This episode is brought to you by Etsy. Looking to instantly upgrade your Mother's Day gift from typical to meaningful? Shop Etsy. Now until May 12th, get up to 30% off personalized jewelry, style, decor, and so many other items mom will love. And if you want her to know you put a ton of thought into her present, use Gift Mode. Gift Mode on Etsy takes the stress out of gifting so you can easily find well-crafted, original, and affordable pieces from small shops. Just tap or click Gift Mode on your Etsy app or Etsy.com. Then answer a few short questions about mom, and Gift Mode instantly gives you curated ideas based on hundreds of personas. Need something original and affordable for Mother's Day? Etsy has it. Shop until May 12th for up to 30% off gifts for mom. Terms apply. Now, where is the North-South divide, farmer's friend? Where do you think the north of England starts? Daughter's friends think Spalding. Grayson Perry seems to be about Sheffield on his TV show, which is the Midlands in farmer's friend's view. And Farmer's Friends reckons the North starts at a line just above Scott's Corner on the A1. Yeah, you see, Stephen Munro, who works on the Corran Ferry, every time we talk about the North, when we're talking about England, he sends me a message saying, we're the North, he's up in the Highlands, okay? No, Sheffield's definitely in the North. I can't, Sheffield's not in the South. How can you say Sheffield's in the South? <laughs> well, always, I mean, it's interesting. Well, as a Cumbrian MP, I always felt a bit weird about people talking about, you know, Manchester or Sheffield being the North because they were a hell of a long way South from me. Yeah, but if you if you live in London or, or I mean, people talk about North of Watford. If you live in Watford, you think of Sheffield. I mean, Sheffield is the North. It's like, uh, how can anybody dispute that? I don't understand that <laughs> anybody can dispute that Sheffield is, <laughs> is in the north. Um, actually, Rory, here's one that fits with what you've just been talking about. Rob Young, how do MPs manage to do their duties as effective when their constituencies are in remote areas? I've always had a lot of respect for Alistair Carmichael, who's been serving as the Lib Dem MP for Shetland and Orkney since 2001. And I, I, I like Alistair Carmichael as well. I think he's a very good guy. Um, but you had a pretty rural Yes, I, I had the lar- largest, largest constituency in England. It would take me a couple of hours to drive from one end to the other. And often I was doing surgeries in different ends of the constituency. And it was nearly, I guess, a five-hour drive on many days to get up from London. And it's a difficult balancing act because particularly if you've got a, a working partner, they've got to decide whether they're going to be working in the constituency or working in London. And whichever they decide, you're only going to be able to see them about four days a week and the other three days you won't see them, whichever way you choose to do it. I remember once being in Australia with this guy who was a member of the Australian Parliament and um, part of his expenses package was that he had a helicopter. Um, <laughs> and the reason he's had a helicopter is that his constituency was was bigger than Portugal. Amazing. Well, <laughs> so, it's, it's, it, it is amazing. And I've noticed Rishi Sunak's been getting in trouble hopping around in helicopters. Oh, I think, I think that's fair. I think, I do think the other day where it was, he went down to the West Country, then he got flown back and then he got a helicopter back to Cornwall the next day. I mean, you've got to think about the optics as well as the fuel that you're burning. Well, I don't know. I mean, I, it's, it's an interesting one. I, 
I, I obviously I think it'd be outrageous for me to have a helicopter, but it is true that I felt um, there was a big difference between MPs like me representing constituencies up on the Scottish border and people like, um, you know, uh, Malcolm Rifkind, who was res- representing Chelsea and Westminster, where he could just, his, his constituents <laughs> weren't there for the weekend and he could just toddle out of the House of Commons straight over. It's a very different world. I and mean, we talked a lot about Lee Anderson on, on the last couple of shows. There's a reason why increasingly the new breed of politicians, new generation of politicians are very much local people who've grown up, spent their whole life in local constituencies, because there is a big divide between the culture of London and, and the culture of elsewhere. And I think the days of people like me and dare I say, Tony Blair, slightly parachuting into, into seats in the North, maybe coming to an end. Mm, well, let's see. Let's see, Rory. You get, you, we, there's lots of gaps opening up in the Tory ranks, that's for sure. Stephen Clark, what did you make of last week's State of the Union address by President Biden? I missed it. Missed it oh, so. Rory, you can't present a podcast called The Rest is Politics and not at least have a sense of the President of America's State of the Union address. Go on then. Tell us about what you thought of it. Uh, I Two things. One, I thought he was on really good form. And hit a lot of good buttons, stayed off a lot of the so-called woke stuff, did a lot of the foreign policy stuff. I guess the, the speech was got a lot of the coverage, though, was from the heckling by some of these Republicans. And that woman, Marjorie, whatever her name is, something Clark, I saw yesterday coverage of her doing a rally and down in wherever she's from, where she got the crowd going by saying, hands up if you think Mitch McConnell really is a Republican. <laughs> no, no hands were raised. Hands up if you think Mitch McConnell is actually a Democrat. Yeah, oh, hands up. And then somebody shouted, he's not a Democrat, he's a communist. And I thought, my God, what is happening to this country? <laughs> Mitch McConnell is so right wing in my <laughs> scale, right? And here we have a Republican congresswoman whipping up a crowd against, not against Joe Biden, he's just, you know, evil, but against Mitch McConnell. I mean, that place is becoming ungovernable. Well, it's, it's, it's interesting, isn't it? I, I always think about this. When I was in the States and people focused a lot on Joe Manchin, who's the, the, yeah, the, yeah, yeah. the Democrat senator from West Virginia, who had the swing vote on a lot of the legislation in the first couple of years of Biden's administration. And everyone was completely horrified by the fact that he had much more right-wing views than many other Democrats. But of course, on the other hand, he would never have won that seat if mm. he hadn't had more right-wing views. It wasn't a natural Democrat seat. It was a Republican Mm. seat. And Mm. he held on to that seat for the Democrats and won the Democrats, that majority in the Senate, partly through those views that that people then complained about. Yeah, but he also, uh, if if I can give a bit of breaking news to our listeners, well, we've done, we've got David Lamy next for leading. Then we've got Fiona Hill, uh, foreign policy advisor to Trump and others. But we've also got Bernie Sanders coming up. Bernie Sanders. And as a result of that, I'm reading his new book, it's okay to be angry about capitalism. And Manchin features quite a lot, as he calls him a corporate Democrat, one of the corporate Democrats. But what comes through in reading Bernie's book is just how difficult American politics is because of the grip of money on politics. And I think we've really, really got to be very, very careful about the way our money's going. I I didn't see it, but I saw a lot of social media traffic on this Channel 4 documentary about Russian money in the Conservative Party. I think that 
Labour. I think Sunak should do this as well, but he he won't because I think he's too deep in. But I really hope Labour do come in with a with a new approach on funding. And I know it's difficult. They've all got to get funding. They've all got to get money raised. But oh, I, I'd love to do it. I'd love to do it. And, and luckily, we don't have. I mean, the thing that gets in the way in the states is this ridiculous abuse of the Constitution and Supreme Court rulings, which allow these super PACs. Yeah. No, well, Bernie taught us a lot about that. Hopefully, they're sending you the book before we do it as well. But the it's really worth reading. It, it, you feel like you're you're listening to a never-ending Bernie Sanders speech. He really sort of he's on it the whole time. But he got the guy's got energy. I give him that. So in Britain, it was lovely to be honest, running as a local MP in Penrith and the border, and realizing that the total campaign spending limit for the short campaign was, I think, seventeen thousand pounds. Mm. And I think that's, you know, I keep saying this to American colleagues, that's the way to do it. And my Labour and Lib Dem colleagues watched every penny we spent. Mm. If our team were wearing t-shirts, they'd get the cost of the t-shirts, they'd get the cost of every banner to make sure we weren't spending over £17,000. And it does mean that basically in those local constituency elections, there isn't really huge scope for corruption in Britain because you can't actually buy someone for that money because actually your local association is able to raise most of that money itself. To finish, though, I mean, I'd really like to challenge the Conservatives have got to stop taking money from big business and Labour have got to stop taking money from the unions. It's Mm. not necessary. There is no reason why these parties need to bring in these millions of pounds. Oh, are you sure about that? I mean, you've got to have an organisation. You've got to have structures. Look, I agree it's become corrupted, but... Listen, I ran a few election campaigns and I wouldn't have liked to have done it without a few. <laughs> a few you know, no. Yeah. Danger Dins. Would, here, this is a straight yes or no question, Rory. Yeah. Would Rory be a Democrat in the United States? Yes. Good. Tom Halloran. Thanks to Rory, Alistair played a blinder against Rees Mogg on the Radio 4 Brexit panel. Totally oh. disarm him. Do you both agree? I, I did use your tactic, Rory. You said that I should sort of, you know, expose what he was doing and i did do a bit of that but actually i think he lost the debate because he he just wasn't on form he was he was sort of a bit all over the place he was very subdued he started gaslighting straight away once people started booing him it was uh, it was pretty much game over listen here's a question for you i think we'll, i think we'll disagree agreeably on this one daniel virin yeah i'm a first year economics and politics student at the university of bristol do you believe that compulsory voting should be implemented in the uk it has successfully increased voter turnout in Australia and Belgium to 92 and 90% respectively. I am a yes. I, I'm a yes too. Oh, are we? We're agreeing. Oh, I'm a okay. yes too. I, a lot of our listeners hate it when I say that, actually. I've been abused, particularly by Cumbrian constituents. Um, before we close, I did have somebody ask me a Valentine's Day question, which I thought was a, definitely something we have to cover. Oh, so God. Steve Smith, heading to Cumbria for an evening this Valentine's. Rory, any recommendations on walks and local eats? So big recommendation at the moment, if you can get up High Street, which runs and walk the whole route, which takes you from Askham right over to Watermillock. So you're basically going from Penrith right the way over to the other side of the Lake District. Yeah, hold on. This is, I think the question is about a date, Rory. It's not about a walk. <laughs> it's about a date. Is <laughs> it walks? And the local eats, okay, local eats. Um, well, if, you, if you're really feeling like treating someone, Askham Hall, absolutely lovely, delicious meal. Very good. That's good. And Rory, we get a lot of people saying they enjoy saying what we're reading and watching. So I've told you, what, I'm, I'm reading Bernie Sanders' book. I've just fin- I finished Fiona Hill's book on the drive down, listened to it on Audible at double speed, which gave me a bit of car sickness. Um, but it's a very good read. And I'm also reading John Lennon. I didn't even know that this is one of those books that's just been sitting on a bookshelf for years. And it's it's his musings, John Lennon in his own right, W-R-I-T-E. Huh. And it's absolutely brilliant. I mean, the guy was a genius, a comic genius. 
Very good. Well, here, here are a couple for me. So I talked a little bit last time about this amazing book that I was reading called Lost Realms, mm. Histories of Britain from the Romans to the Vikings. Just a beautiful, beautiful book because it takes all the micro kingdoms that emerged between the end of the Roman Empire in Britain. So places that were smaller, Elmet, for example, in Yorkshire, not very far from you, actually, where you grew up in Keithley, mm -hmm. had a bit of Elmet going on. But tiny, tiny places with their own kings, their own literature, their own culture. And the author takes you all the way around from Wales up to Scotland in these micro kingdoms and does it was so beautifully because archaeology is changing so much in the last few years, the way that we view the so-called dark ages. Oh, brilliant. And he's just brilliant at bringing them to light. Um, another thing which I've talked about a little bit, which I, I think you'd really like if you haven't read them, Philip Kerr has written a series of, um, before he died, three detective stories where the hero is a football manager. Oh. So I don't know whether you, whether you read detective stories, but – it's really fun. Really okay. fun. Well, I've written, I've written a novel where the hero is a football manager, Saturday, Bloody Saturday. Well, I need to read your Saturday, Bloody Saturday. No, I, I don't. It, well, you might enjoy it. It's about, it's about football and terrorism. It's about the IRA. Okay. Um, but it's also about the hero is an, uh, an alcoholic football manager. Yeah. Very good. So I'm watching this very funny Steve Martin thing, Only Murders in the Building. Oh, Lord, what's that then? Well, it's, it's, it's sort of, it's comic, uh, but it's got a serious thing. But it's also, it's actually about, it's about people who are making a true crime podcast inside their own building where they live, where there's been a murder. Oh. <laughs> so it's, it's quite funny. There's a lot of podcast dynamic going on within it, which is quite amusing. Well, I've been watching House of the Dragon, which is the, the prequel to Game of Thrones, right. um, where Paddy Constantine plays a really wonderful king, sort of strangely weak, sympathetic, compassionate, puzzled. And, and I think for anyone interested in power, it, it, gets, it gets better. And it's, it doesn't have the kind of the sort of gratuitous violence and soft porn elements, which I think slightly wrecked Game of Thrones for me. Yeah, I, 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 I can't watch violence on television. Yeah, hate so it. There, there, there I am. How's the dragon? I've been enjoying it. Okay, are we about done? I, I think we are. And I think, honestly, you and I should go off and get our lem sip. Yeah. Is yours just a cold or is it, a post oh, hyper, is it a post hypothermic cold, which is obviously a lot more glamorous? I don't have any hypothermia, but it's <laughs> absolutely horrible. Did you ever watch a, a British comedy show called Citizen Khan, where the hero coughs and splutters in the bathroom? Yeah, 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 yeah. Is that yeah, you? That's, yeah, that's me. Yeah. Oh, oh dear. <laughs> well, have a lovely <laughs> okay. evening. Bye bye. See you. Bye. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. It was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. 
Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? Well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii. Okay. And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy, too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics U.S. wherever you get your podcasts.